Welcome to the podcast, David Miller. And we're sitting in Girona, we're in the heart of Girona, and you would seriously never believe it because of the volume here. We are on the Rumbler, and this place, Dave's invited me up to his studio, and it's beautiful here. It's beautifully decked out, double glazed, as you guys can hear or not hear the street. And it's a pleasure to be up here with you, mate. And we're having... As I promised him, we got in contact during the tour in Norway. I thought, you know what? I'll entice him with a beer. And we're sitting here drinking the beer all the way back from Norway. Welcome. Thank you, Mitch. Yeah. No, I think we're going to have to make this the new destination for the Mitch Docker podcast. I think so, too. Yeah. I'll, I'll take it up. If you're offering, I'll, I'll be happy to um, have a few more people in here. Uh, we're welcome to. No, no, it's, it's, it's the first time I've even done an interview in here. I mean... We're here with Richard Pierce, who's in the background, he's my partner in Chapter 3, and that's our kind of new our new brand that we're working on, have been for two years, and we finally created a design studio, and that's what this is. It's not a it's not a, a tiny one-bedroom kitchenette, it's a lovely two-bedroom kitchenette. <laughs> it's it's fantastic, you know. I wish I could, and I'm probably gonna take a couple of photos at the end and put them up on the website so you guys can see where we are. This is awesome. Give us a yell, Richard, from over there. Hey guys, how you doing? Yeah, nice. So he's here, he's sort of listening in, he's getting the first taste of the podcast before any one of you guys will hear it, but um, I guess we get straight into it, and first of what I want to talk to you about is the Giro's on at the moment, We're coming into the final week of the Giro, and as we speak today is the Stelvio stage, um, I don't know the exact stage it is today, but supposedly two times up there, things are getting serious now in the third week of a Grand Tour. And with a lot of Grand Tours yourself notched up, I guess give the listeners a bit of an idea what it takes to go into a third week of a Grand Tour, let alone the third week of a Giro, which I think is the most epic of the Grand Tours. Not doing the Tour, but I just assume it's, it's epic. Yeah, well, I mean, um, the Giro sort of set the fashion for these really hard final weeks. Yeah. You know, when I first started doing Grand Tours, it's in 2000, um, it was Tour de France, my first three-week Grand Tour, and uh, the last is that. In those days, it followed a very similar pattern. The first week was re- relatively flat, sprinty. Middle week, middle ten days, mountainous with transition stages in the middle. Then the last four or five days, pretty flat with a time trial, and it was always the same. I mean, not to say it wasn't hard. I mean, my first tour in 2000, we had three stages over 250 kilometers in the last week, which you don't do anymore. No. And, um, and that was the first year they'd done two rest days. Before then, it was only one rest one day. One rest day? Before that, it was just one rest day. But it's... Um, Christ. But the Giro kind of, it's one of those ones where... And also, the Giro used to be the second Grand Tour of the year because the Vuelta was in eight, March, April. So it was actually the middle Grand Tour. But nowadays, because the Giro is the first Grand Tour, it's also kind of it's, it set the tone and has almost become the bar of... And, and likes to lay claim to being the hardest Grand Tour physically in the actual mm. parkour, the course. And they do manage to do it every year. Um, it's horrific. And it's, it's, not a, it's not a pleasant race. I, I never enjoyed it that much. Probably for that reason, I found it was just overly, overly hard, the terrain. Mm. But, um, but yeah, so... But other races are not quite like that. I mean, I, I tended to always be quite good in the third week. So I'd go into Grand Tour as really peaking out because I was prologue specialist for the early part of my career so my first Grand Tours were very much based around the first yeah. week then I'd taper off a bit in the middle 
Taper off in in the in the tour. How how would you do that? I guess I was just really fit and young and naive, and I I, I had I, I had a, a little bit of a grand tour physiology, but I didn't actually use it. Mm. So I could sort of turn it on and off when I wanted to, and I then take certain days easy, target target certain stages and I used to always think well everyone's going to be buggered the last week so I'll take the middle week a little bit easy then I've got more chance of ripping them in mm. the last week and that'd be just like going tra- dropping back a group dropping on the, the mountains right. so I just yeah. choose my groups so I yeah. just choose the easiest group generally yeah. and just sit in the, the groupetto what but a privilege that was for a few, quite I a few years you, it was I a privilege I would love to be able to do that <laughs> oh, man. I took my, my last group I'd choose yeah my last few grand tours I took I suddenly appreciated what a dickhead I'd been for so many years because I'd just be groveling in the groupetta as well. And, you know, I, I do understand that. And I, I, I really got to grasp that those last few years. And I remember actually Cadell Evans, what was this? The bad tour he had. Uh, kind of, I think it was tour after, tour before he won. Yeah. And I was in the groupetto with him. Yes, yes. I remember he was in groupetto. It was yeah, really strange. Yeah. Yeah. And, he, and I was talking to him and he was like, it's the first time he'd ever been in a groupetto. Ever? Ever. And I was just like, wow. Can you imagine how annoying he would have been in that groupetto? Oh, I think you know. Yeah. I oh, I know you. the... <laughs> it's no imagining When required. the movies come in the groupetto, you're like, hey, there's a system <laughs> oh, here, buddy. And they're going around telling everybody, it's my first time here. This is amazing. How are you guys? It's like, we can't talk, man. <laughs> Don't talk to us. <laughs> Get to the back. Yeah. Stay away from the front. Virank was saying, Richard Virank told me once that he'd never been in a groupetto in his whole career. <laughs> Imagine that. And it's actually a few riders like that. I mean... That's sad. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah, a fun, I know. it's a fun thing back there. Like, you know, that's nothing to brag about. Yeah, I think that's missing out on experiences. Exactly. Like, all the good guys are back yeah, there. You've got to get a spectrum of friends. You it's don't make friends at the front. You, you make don't. friends at the back. That's a little rule of life there. Yeah. It is true. Mm. There's, and I'll tell you what, one thing that has drifted away from is... I was talking about this the other day in Norway... It was a pretty relaxed when the breakaways went. So I did a bit of last wheel time, a bit of at the back. Oof. And I was like, I can't remember the last time I've done this. It doesn't happen anymore. You've got to sit with your team in the line. Yeah, that does have the two riders that do do it. Steve Cummings does it. Ryder Hedgedal used to do it. Peter and Weening now. Peter Weening, Tom Vaucler, he'll do it. Yeah. But Tom Vaucler is quite clever. He'll be right at the back, or he'll be right, you'll be watching him. Then all of a sudden, he's there exactly when he needs to be. Yeah. Peter Van Petskem used to be able to do it in classics, which no one can do. Peter Van Petskem would sit at the back in the hardest one day classics, and he'd be like, oh, God. And the camera would be on him because he was such a star, and you'd think, oh, he's messed it up. Then you wouldn't see him for a while. The camera would focus the front of the race, it'd all start hitting off, and he was there. You're like, how did you do that? No one, no one can grasp how difficult it is to do that, to move up a, a, a classic peloton when it's full gas, position yourself exactly where you need to be, when you need to be, and he could do it every time. Vaucler does it. Steve Cummings doesn't. He just chooses days where he wants to destroy everybody and then attacks, goes in the brakes. And uh, Ryder used to do the same. Carlos Sastra as well. So it's a certain racing style, and there are a handful of guys that do it. But you have to not give a shit about your team. As yeah. you know, you're on a team that's very yeah. good, an amazing team dynamic, and you rely on everybody to be where they need to be to help the team in its strategy. So you can't have one of you at the back just not doing anything. Looking just, not one. Ass, yeah, just not giving an arse. Just not giving an arse, yeah. I, I didn't like people doing that. But... It's quite good fun when you can do it. It is. It's seriously <laughs> relaxing back there. Oh, like, it's a joy. Look at them fighting up there, would you? <laughs> would you look at it? It's like a washing machine. And you see the crashes happening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a swerve around. Like, yeah, oh, there you go. Just clip out, walk through the grass. <laughs> you all right? <laughs> good times. That was worth fighting for 50th wheel, was it, buddy? 
<laughs> but yeah, that is me now fighting for it because it was it was a nice breath of fresh air in Norway. But um, yeah, we we sort of drifted off the point there. But we actually moved on to the next thing I wanted to ask you is um, I'm actually interested in like the, the culture in the pelotons. Mm. And something that's one podcast I do still want to do is the respect in the peloton. It's something that's really changed over the time, and maybe you can't comment so much on it now. Um, I want to speak to someone who's in the peloton now, but what I wanted to speak to you about was more because you turned pro in 1997 mm-hmm. and then finished in 2014, so it's a long span of time. What was the culture like back then in the peloton? If you can even answer this question, compared to 2014, you know, like it's, yeah, I, I, it's I, changed a lot. I thought about it a lot. Uh, I think those last few years, trying to figure out what the difference was, and and it was there was a, a certain hierarchical system within teams and the peloton it had been for decades, even into the late 90s and early 2000s, where each team had figures of stature within them and they'd be split normally 50-50 between the leader and the captain Mm. and the captain would tend to often either be a a really seasoned domestic who'd shown glimmers of brilliance had the talent but then he had the the personality to rally his team but then also play the mafia game with other teams so Mm. those captains would have a certain role within the peloton Mm. who would be someone like that who was in yours in Cofidis in the early days in Cofidis it was Massimiliano Lelli it was an right. Italian guy and he was a great bike rider decided early on that he wasn't going to be the best so he then became the best at what he was which was being able to rally the troops manipulate situations even within his own team within other teams really good at it he was friends with everybody that was mm. a ticket the captains knew everybody he spoke three languages spoke Spanish, Italian, French and he knew the key riders, never made enemies. And there were, a bunch, they were almost like a little mafioso kind of within the peloton. And because you had those guys, you never mess with those guys. Or you try and befriend them, but they always called the shots. They'd tell you to go back. They'd, they'd do different things. The leaders were sort of chaperoned by them. But then what the big difference was, you didn't have the, the system of eight man, like you were just saying, the whole team riding together. Yeah. There were small groups. And you wouldn't, if a whole team came up, you were kind of getting in the way and was causing problems. Mm. So you'd only have two or three riders with you at a time, groups of three or four. A very dynamic style of racing, which I think comes back and some of the best teams still do it. But it meant that you, each of you within the peloton, you had a certain time frame when you were useful and had to be at the front. And you'd avoid being at the front when those moments weren't there because mm. you get in trouble and you get in the way and you get told off yeah no, by yeah. these other exactly. captains from other squads and so it gave the peloton a, a really sort of a system you had to graduate to the level where you would be a, in the mm. front in those moments and then so the front of the peloton was a really that was a, a highly operational environment with no kind of chafe it was there was real there were all the hitters there there was all the weapons you didn't deal with a small weaponry at those points in the race whereas now there's tons of small weaponry at the front and they're getting in the way and they don't know how to do it and they're too stressed and they make mistakes and they're, they're not flowing. And I think that's been the, the big shift. And they're too, no one scares them or there's no system to stop them being there. Totally. So, that's, you've actually yeah. hit the nail right on the head there. That's a, it's the best description I've had of... It's, uh, yeah, I, well, like I said, I spent a lot of time thinking about it because I just couldn't figure out why we kept crashing and why we kept... And then I started realising people were trying to hold wheels at the front when they shouldn't be there. Yeah. They, they were in positions they shouldn't be and they didn't have the skill set, they didn't have the physical wherewithal, they didn't have the tactical 
nous and you know there are times in, well you know from bike race especially at the highest level once you get to those critical moments you only want the really good guys there mm. because they don't make mistakes and they don't get stressed and they don't panic and they they're fluid they don't if they see they're losing the will, they don't panic. They'll let it go. They'll find it again in 30 seconds. And there's general respect between different teams, you know, like you... And we, I noticed this just in Norway now. There was a weird respect between the three World Tour teams there. It was like us against the rest. And it was, and that's the feeling I feel when you go to the end of a sprint stage, like you mm. just said, you might get all the sprinters up the front and there's a general respect. But then suddenly there's a climber up there and you're mm. like, what are you doing up here? You know? well, that's actually the best description of what it used to be like as well. You'd only have a few teams who were that strong. Mm. So even within the peloton, you'd have three or four really strong teams and the rest of the teams, and you did have a mixture of pro-conti teams and continental yeah, that's teams. that's true. And, and so the, the dominance and power of those teams could bully the race into doing what they wanted. Now, there's the ultimate irony in that with signs coming in, with the anti-doping culture where everyone's cleaner, Everyone's got access to all the same training technology, the same coaching. Every, the whole peloton's at a higher level, which means every the whole it's actually a very level playing field. Now that level play, level playing field has actually made the, the peloton a more dangerous place. Yeah, it's crashing totally because everyone's kind of got the same physical ability, and it's only a tiny amount. So if you go to race like Norway or you go to Yorkshire, as commentating in Yorkshire, you could see it. The World Tour teams when they started, when they opened fire. <clears throat> the race was just destroyed yeah. and they could sit there they could control it they could bully the race they could do their things but the moment they decided to play it was just them left yeah. and in many ways the peloton used to be like that there were only a few guys and a few teams that were powerful enough to dominate it and so it gave it this natural hierarchy and, and to a certain degree of safety mm. because you knew what was going to happen when it was going to happen and how it was going to happen now it's just anarchy can be anything yeah, yeah. that's and, totally right mm. and they there's Neo Pros, and there's nothing against Neo Pros, but you know, like like you said, they don't really want to earn their stripes and find their way to the front. They just go, well, I've got the numbers, so I'll be there. You exactly. know? And that's probably one of the things. I think the earning the stripes thing is a really big... It's part of the culture of professional cycling, and I think it's really important that that stays within it because in most industries, that's how, when you're at the top, you, you respect the whole ladder up and you understand, you empathise with what's, with what's going on. And But you need mentors to... to to kind of endorse that and at the moment that's maybe lacking a little bit I, I feel so yeah like I was I always refer back to and I never had the chance to race with him but I always refer back that the peloton's missing a chippo you know and I always hear these stories of the Giro chippo called the shots there and there was no um, attacking when someone was having a pierce so there wasn't any attacking you know there was there was a bit of unspoken rules and I feel like there isn't any of them anymore but again that's, that's the great thing about Chippo it's purely Machiavellian because he'd only control what was in his best interest mm. you know it's so that's because true. he was physically terrifying because he did actually have the the kind of the backup you wouldn't want to get in a fight with him because mm. he, there's not many people that could that could hurt him. That's Mario Cipollini. Mario Sorry, Cipollini, yeah. yeah. And, um, but he would do it. I remember 1997, Route du Sud. So this is like the tiny little stage race in the Pyrenees. Just um, before the tour. Just before the tour. Yeah. One of my favourite races, actually. Um, it was a kind of the anti-tour switch. You have three, three, well, two preparatory races before the Tour de France, the final two classic famous ones. Tour Switzerland and the Dauphiné. 
and the two of them have always been for decades, the, mm-hmm. those final two races. There's one other one. There was a tiny little thing called Route du Sud, which is a four-day four race, just the week before, ten, ten days before the Tour de France. And it was lovely. It was like an amateur race. And you'd go there. If you'd done the Giro, you'd do some crits. You'd then use that as your final prep race because it was only four days long. Mm. So you didn't solid, though. Solid. Bloody solid. Oh, my God. Yeah, you yeah. go over Tourmalet and things like that often. Yeah. But um, I was in it. It's my first year. And we were... We were just going on kind of the second day, and it was a, the kind of flat day. There was going to be a sprint finish, but we'd be sitting there chatting. A break had gone. It had taken five, five minutes, ten minutes. And those days, it would take 10, 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden, the peloton just starts stringing out and just going, like, balls out. I mean, oh, so fast. Hell, yeah. And I was just, like, terrifying, like, for 50Ks to go. And then it would just stop. And all go kind of quiet again. I'd be like, what the fuck just happened? And, and then it would be it was Seiko on the front oh, yeah, right. doing practicing their lead outs oh. in the middle of the race full, a full Seiko cheapo at its prime lead out just randomly because the, the tour is coming up yeah so they just used it they, didn't, they weren't even interested in the final result they did three full gas blown mad mad lead outs what? and this, this is Epo years and so everyone's just pinned on the wheels for like five minutes, just going, just kind of just like, just you, all, every, your whole world disappears and you're just looking at that wheel in front of you, just going, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. And they'll just stop. And they'd all be at the like, front what laughing. the hell is yeah. going on here? Just these red guys just pulled off laughing. Pieces. <laughs> and then they're just like, oh God, and everyone's just waiting for Stuart again. That's what it used to be was like, Ma- man. Was Mario Cipollini in Route to Sud? He wasn't even there. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, no. why the hell would he do that? <laughs> no, yeah. No, no, he wasn't even there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Oh, that was awesome. But it's, you know, that's what they... In those days, we had training races. Mm. And that's what people forget as well. We'd have... That's even, true. So although we've been talking about the peloton having a hierarchy, the season would have a hierarchy. And it would have follow this cyclical nature between big objectives of which races were training, yeah. which races were preparatory for sprinters, for climbers, for GC riders, which teams would be there, why they were there, what they were doing it for. And often, they'd be pretty easy races yeah. with moments where they were really hard. And Whereas now, everything is... Um, full gas. Full gas. Yeah, that's Every win matters now. Whereas before, it was like, well, that's okay. I totally had, I, and again, I had this conversation up in Norway. It's a, it's a race that I haven't, a smaller race that I haven't done for a long time. And I feel with Orica now, we do majority world tour races. And when we're not racing, we're just training. And that's something I didn't do before in my previous team in Skill Shimano. We were a pro Conti team. We did a whole lot of half week races. And then there'd be a world tour race on the horizon and you'd peak up for it through these races and you'd be at your best in the world tour race. Yeah. No, no, exactly. And that was, they, they, they did matter. And, but the thing is as well, the, the calendar's reducing, so a lot of those races are gone. Mm. In, in the late 90s and early 2000s, you could do a full season in Spain. Yeah. A full season. I've heard that, races. Yeah. And every single one of those races would be on Spanish national TV. It was nuts. Um, but now there's hardly any of them exist. And, um, so, yeah, so the, the sport's changing. And I do believe for the better, but it's a transitional period at the moment, and so we haven't quite found our feet about where it's going and what it is. Mm. Mm. Um, a question, a, a, a common statement that gets thrown at me when I'm home in Australia is, I think, by a lot of people who just don't know exactly what is happening over here, and they read the media, and the statement is, but every cyclist is on drugs. What's your thought on such a comment? I think it's, it's based on a... On a, on a valid perception because of the history of the sport and what we've been through and what we've done. 
and I was past that generation. I think it's very sad that your generation and this current generation is tarnished, tarnished mm. by the mistakes we made, and and not many, not enough of us from my generation, previous generations have have helped to to rectify that, because that 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 shouldn't. It should not be the perception, but it is because that has been the reality for many years. Now, the reality now is different in that I, I believe, and I, don't think there's, I think there's very little difference between belief and knowledge, because when you believe something, it has to come from somewhere. And I believe that the, the biggest races are being won by clean riders. Mm. I think the Tour de France has been won by a clean rider. I think the Giro has been won by a clean rider. I think the World Championships, Paris-Roubaix, Tour of Flanders, Liège-Bastogne-Liège. And... I'll say Chris Froome. I believe Chris Froome's clean. I believe Ryder Hedgedahl, when he won the Giro, I know he'd had a doping pass, he was clean. Dan Martin, young rider, won Liège, is consistently ripping its piece at Liège, mm. which is arguably the hardest physical one-day race in the world. Yeah. And he's been up there since he was young. And and Peter Sagan, I mean, Christ, there's no way he's on drugs. That's just... <laughs> it's like, that's just... He's like a superhero. Yeah. And he has been since 2010 when he first came on the scene. He's yeah. consistently been off the charts. From his very first From race. Very, and you yeah. see the way he races. It's, it's just... That drug doesn't exist. Yeah. It actually, I mean, that's mad science if it does. <laughs> that's genetical engineering, stem cell magic. So I do believe... And I, and I, and I think one of the other big things is which you'll have barely noticed or known which was there used to be a massive needle um, culture mm. and we have a no needle culture now and and my biggest uh, way of trying to explain this to people is I have three children I have two boys um, they're only five and four but probably five five years ago six years ago I mean definitely ten years ago I would have n- never wanted them to go anywhere near the sport now if they were 18, 19, 20, if they want to get into professional cycling doing it, I'd, I'd support them, I'd back them, and I believe they'd, they'd have a really good chance of mm. being able to exploit their natural talent with hard work. But that wasn't before. That was the saddest thing. It doesn't matter how naturally talented you were, how hard you worked. You didn't stand a chance against those guys. Mm. Now you do. So Unless I you want to join the party. Yeah, I, I do. I think that, yeah. I think now, but it's going to take years. It's going to take years of no scandals. It's going to take years of us, us trying to tell that story to people for, them, for that perception to change that everyone's on drugs. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. That's, that's the exact same sort of feeling that I do have. It's like you can explain it as many times as you like or in different ways as you can, but it's just going to take time before people um, start believing it. Um, back on the Grand Tours, this is just something, I guess, as a cyclist and maybe in the general public would like to know, but back, well, maybe you can give us a little bit of history before you answer this question, but I'm not sure if all the listeners know um, that early in your career, you were involved in some doping scandals and then later in your career you served a band and came back and then were um, the front man pretty much for anti-doping and um, at the back of all this my question then is if you can answer it what was it like riding a grand tour one in those days doped and then two coming back and riding a grand tour clean I see mine was a weird one in that I before 
before my ban because I think I've, I've, a lot of people I was banned for for drugs in 2004 and served a two year sentence and uh, I had already done five or six grand tours before then I was 26 yeah 20, 20, 26 27 um I'd done Grand Tours clean. I'd won stages mm. clean yeah, before right. my ban. So I, I, that was what gave me the, the absolute belief that I could do it. Mm. So when I came back, I mean, I, well, the difference was when I came back, I was like, no needles. I was, I was way ahead of the curve. I thought, when I'm coming back into sport, I'm not taking... I didn't even take vitamins, even orally. I took fish oil and that was it. I you came, almost went the other way. Oh, like, I'm completely. doing it no. super... Because I had to prove to myself and I had to prove, I had to be able to say deep down that I was doing, there was nothing, no one could ever say anything about anything, that I was doing it completely clean. Hmm. And I only could do that, I think, because I had already won stuff clean against the the best guys in Grand Tours at the Tour de France. Um, So, but it gave me, the thing is, the moment I started doping the past, when I won doping the past, there's very little, there's a lot of relief, there's very little joy. Hmm. The difference when I came back and it was and even the thing is before my band when I'd won clean and grand tours all I could think of was right if I can beat them clean when I take drugs I'll be able to kill them yeah right so it was always kind of stepping stones yeah but when I came back and I was doing all clean it was the kind of the journey was part of the, the joy and then then beating guys who were on drugs because I wasn't really didn't really matter about that because I was on such a big picture yeah. and I thought the only way I'll have a more powerful voice and anti-doping and make younger riders believe this is possible is by winning it clean by telling them that it's, like, there's nothing here man it's like, I'm not even taking vitamin C mm. so it's um, definitely don't use needles so then I could then that would hopefully give a beacon of hope to say well if he can do that against these guys and he's not doing anything and he's actually standing up there and fighting this cause then perhaps there'll be more talented guys harder working guys that can do even better than me against those guys mm. then over time we'll slowly weed them out but it was, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was all a big. I was on a big mission when I came back—a mission to clean up my mess and also to prevent a younger version of myself having to go through what I went through and what hundreds of other guys went through, because it was preventable. Well, just on that, I, something I didn't really think about myself, and which is obvious, <clears throat> there was a point of clean riding when you first came in, mm. and then obviously that changed. And you made a really interesting comment then. I was winning clean. And then I realised if I can win clean, then I can kill these guys if I then took something. What was that moment? Why, why were you not satisfied with winning clean at that moment? And you had to go then to killing them. I thought it maybe would have been a pressure of, I'm almost quite there, but I just need that extra step. But you, was, you were already winning then. Yeah, I'd, already, I'd made the decision in 2001... So I'd been 97, 98, 99, 0, 1. So five years pro in the kind of the doping area, if you like. Yeah. And now, and I said at the time, I kind of forgotten I said this, I was surprised I'd held out that long because it got to the point where I'd get second, third, fourth in a time trial and people would be like, Pat, my team would be like, pat me on the back and they'd be Close, like... Close, yeah. You know, I know they'd be like, you're the first clean ride a day, well done. Oh, really? Like, yeah, right. Know. And I was like, and you get to, it got to a point where I was just sick of that. And I got was to it a point, bit like pat in the cheek, like, you're an idiot? You're the first clean rider. You don't realise that you can be winning there today. Were, there are two schools of thought. There were the lovely sort of old school in there that kind of really admired it, and then there were there was the kind of the the other. There was I remember the story from this is my second year pro, 1998. So I just turned 21, 
and I, I was at Three Days of Dapana, which you'll know, which is this kind of legendary, probably mm. I still think that one of the hardest and most dangerous bike races in the world. It's a three-day bike race in Belgium on the coast. And um, I won the time trial on the last the last stage. Yeah, uh, right. Against Bartoli and all these guys. Oh, wow. Who are in full, 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 full classic form. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Been and, uh, training very hard. And we did a blood test and then I was... We did a blood test the next morning because they, they, we do blood tests all the time because all the, it was the f- second year that the 50 hematocrit level had come on, right. which was what the UCI were doing at the time. They couldn't test for EPO, but they could they could search the effect it had on your body and they set a limit for that. So that's what the hematocrit test was. So they test us all the time and test to just see so the guys knew where they were. They had machines on the trucks. They had, they'd take us to laboratories and I was just near. I didn't have any idea what any of this was about at the time. Like, oh yeah, just uh, take my blood. Do yeah, what you yeah. need to do, yeah. But I knew the 50 thing was a big deal and so I did that the next morning, did the blood test and then was with the team until three days later we did, I think, Grand Prix Rennes or one of those weird French cup races and, uh, and our blood test came through day four and I, I was at 40 hematocrit. <laughs> And, uh, and I remember they were just shocked him, yeah, wasn't it? I was just like and I was so and I remember thinking oh, this is I was just like you know what and I, I remember thinking fuck you guys you know it's like, I can do this and I, <laughs> I can win off I can, 40 yeah. and so I took this in and I showed um, it was Casagrande Francesco Casagrande was in our team and I wanted to see Lely Lely was already sort of grooming me at the time I was like Lely look see I can do this it's fine and Casagrande sort of took it off me and looked at it and he was like por qué but why why are you riding at 40? Yeah. You could imagine what you'd do at 50, 49, 48. Even, and yeah, 45. Yeah, 45. pumping him. And he was just, he, he couldn't get his head around it. That well, I was did that, that, that stupid. Did that, that, did that just plant the seed then? No, no, think? that didn't was that, was that a bit like, fuck, maybe what could I do? Or were you just like, you're an idiot, man. No, no, it didn't. It was, you're an idiot, man. Oh, right. you just, it just, I got, I understood him immediately. Because I was still on the thing, the sport will clean up. It's going to be fine. It's going to bite my time in four or five years be a level playing field and I mm. wanted to worry about this but it, this is the thing when it got to later 2001 so I realised it wasn't going to clean up mm. it wasn't they weren't going to clean it up and I had to make a decision what do I do do I fight this cause that nobody cares about that I, that I don't even fight because I'll protect these guys because that's part of the part of the system we have where else but if you like but no Manolo says was but he was a sort of still Surugimad still existed his status he had this, had this amazing centre in Paris called the Maxi, Maxi Sports, which was just what very much what Team Sky do now. So anyway, wow, so, very ahead uh, of their time. Oh no, no, massively ahead of their time. Guimard was, and uh, so anyway, so Guimard kind of took me and my the other new pros, David Moncoutier. And, was uh, Moncoutier on the team yeah, then? Yeah, me and him were the new wow. pros. And uh, they don't, teams would only take two neo pros at a time back in those days. Yeah, and you get paid the basically the. The, the bottom salary so it didn't matter how good you were world champion Olympic champion won every single race in France or Spain you were still paid 25,000 euros a year yeah for two years for two years yeah. and, uh, and they'd just throw you into every single bike race again earning those stripes yeah yeah exactly you know what I mean so it was a sink or swim they were, they were, it was an apprenticeship yeah it's like you you survive this then you're obviously good if you totally. understood so my it's like so I was near pro. I was nineteen in nineteen ninety. I turned twenty in nineteen ninety seven. My first year pro, and I did the craziest program. I did Harry Belvoir. I did Etoile de Bessege, Tour Med. Um, well, they're cold races in the south of France. This, this, this yeah. is all yeah. So basically, this program was. I didn't stop racing. I think I did eighty five 
88 days racing on my first year pro all the top. And probably, was there a Grand Tour in there? No, I didn't do Grand Tour. Which makes it way harder too, because they're all like one or two day races. Yeah, just constantly racing. Yeah. And so within that, I was asked two days before to do, three days before Pairu Bay, Silky Mark called me up and said, David, we've got a place for Pairu Bay. <laughs> We've got I, a place for you. Like, they've moved I know, someone it's like, out. Like, <laughs> it's like, you know, he's thinking, wow, this must be a dream. And I was like, I don't know. I don't want to go there. <laughs> I actually was like, I don't want to come. <laughs> and he was like, why? But you've got a place. <laughs> and so I, I, was like, well, I, I said, so do I have to come? And he said, yeah. <laughs> so I went up there and then... I'm going to word it differently. Yeah, you actually... Yeah. I, yeah, I actually refused to race. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. So I went one rider short. Bullshit. I, yeah, yeah. You didn't start. Yeah, you were there. I, was, I said no because I was so tired. They'd raced me so much before and I was, I'd already said I, I can't even ride my bike at the moment. Most I can do is an hour and a half. I'm so exhausted. Yeah. So I'd done two then. I'd done already like 25, 30 days racing. I was already kind of being a bit... I wasn't... I just thought they were being irresponsible with yeah. me. And uh, so I didn't race. And that was basically set the tone. Yeah, and then nice. I started it the next year and I was did domestic roles. I did the first 150K, sit in the front, look after my guys, pull out. And uh, But it was never really uh, something that kind of... The classics didn't, didn't click with me at the time because I was clean and I knew the other guys were on drugs. And 260, 270 kilometers racing, I just couldn't... I thought it was just the drugs doing that. Mm. So I was like, well, I can't do that. So yeah. I'm not even going to bother. I'm not even going to start. I'm not even going to start. Yeah. So it's like, you guys are just, this is bullshit. But I didn't realize at the time that, you know, probably the one chance, you, the one area where I would have stood a chance were the one days because mm. you could still perform clean against those guys in those three-week stage races you couldn't. But yeah, that set the tone. And the, through my career, as I got older, I realized I was actually quite good at the one-day races. But the one nemesis I had was was Paris Bay, and I think I, I just had this kind of thing in my head so the last year I decided I have to do this and I have to finish it there was never like that drive I can understand now from that first year there's never because Roubaix is a race you have to really want to finish that to finish it like I mean really want to mm. finish it because there's so many tickets out yeah, there you are. Know? and everyone expects you to not finish it. And that's sort of yeah, because there are like you said, you, so many you, tickets. You're going to get a puncher. You're going to break yeah. your bike maybe or something. You're going to get lost. Yeah. You're going to get lost. You're going to yeah. get dropped. And if you don't want to finish, you can get out of there easy. So exactly what you said. If you didn't want to finish, so I did, and I got there the last year, and I managed to make through. I punctured. And I was actually front group, probably the best of my team. Um, nice. And I punctured with like thirty k's to go, thirty five k's to go, and got the wrong wheel, and all went wrong as it does. Yeah. And um, so I just rolled in, I crashed in the roll, rolling in, so I was relaxed. And then I got to the velodrome, and I was coming in, and I was coming around, and I thought, fuck, I made it through Bay Velodrome, and I thought, this is good, I did it. My wife had flown up, and she was there, and the whole team were there, and you know, it was kind of, mm. it was nice. Yeah, nice. So I'd done the first half lap around, and I get, or the lap arounds, and I, I really, and I get there, and Did you pull I'm in so already, far behind, you? I was so far behind that, people were ahead of me on the lap and were stopping on the finish line and and I got there and the, the finish line was blocked to get through to continue and finish my lap and I thought well maybe I don't have to do it I mean surely they'd, they'd be pushing them off so I could carry on I'm not going to stop and unclip and, and kind of barge through to, yeah. to go through and do so another just, 200 meters that kind of ruins yeah. the moment yeah. so I thought oh, I'll just pull off maybe that's kind of when you're this far back you don't have to do the full thing so I'm there and I get into the middle and my wife's there hugs take my helmet off get given a can of Fanta drinking that photos I'm like yeah finish with bait it's amazing doing some interviews already and then I could 
see Mariah Pongrass, who is our PR for the team. I could see her looking a bit uncomfortable and somebody whispering in her ear, and then her looking at me. And I just got a glance and I just carried on. I was like, oh, whatever. And then I saw her go and speak to Nicole, carried on with the interviews. About five minutes in now, so pretty deep into finishing Roubaix. Yeah. And uh, my wife pats me on the back, and I'm like, hey, babe. And she's like, uh, you have to do another lap. <laughs> and I was like, what? She's like, you haven't finished. And I was like, oh, come on, no, I'm not doing another lap. That's just embarrassing. <laughs> she's like, well, you'll get a DNF if you don't. Do, do not, didn't finish, did not finish. And I was like, oh, for God's sake. And I was like, okay. So I then had to, like, get my helmet back off something, <laughs> leave all the interviews, <laughs> roll off the centre and ride around. And it was the most shameful <laughs> thing I think I've done in my career. And I, that, so then Richard then designing the chapter three in our clothing line something so we, were, we created this jersey and we thought it'd be like a really beautiful classical cuts like a, an old school cycling jersey with a modern twist we thought well it's classical we should name it after something classic in cycling and then we kind of got to think our oh, classics Paris Bay oh what about one of the classics oh Paris Bay but it's like well let's just call it one more lap I was going to say that yeah, yeah, yeah one yeah. more lap That's so he did this brilliant thing and the whole instead of using cobblestones as the sort of motif he used the actual velodrome so the whole pattern on that jersey and all the stuff we've done is is essentially that, that an abstract design of the velodrome and so it's our, our little sort of like fuck you to Paris-Roubaix yeah. we did finish and you know what I love about your Roubaix story yeah. is that it finished as shitty as it started yeah, exactly. Even though you did finish Roubaix, you finished it on a real still shitty just, way. Still just slapped me in the face. Yeah, it yeah. just got you. You think, you think you got me? Yeah. No, you haven't got me. <laughs> yeah. So, oh well. We won in the end, I hope, with one more lap. Yeah, that's brilliant. Great. And I was just seeing in my head, like, oh, you should call it one more lap. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. We did. Only now. Only now. Um, it's a pretty simple question, just to sort of finish this off here, mate. Um, is there a race you wish you could have won? Like, you know, maybe it was Roubaix. Maybe, you know what, I could have gone out with a win at Roubaix. Mm. What do you think? Or is it just a real race that you I mean, I think any of them, you know, it's like any, I would have loved to have won a monument or I think every single bike race, it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, I think Matty Heyman's a prime sort of example of that. It's, he always dreamt, he never thought it was going to happen, but he did it, you know, and I think that's part of, that's the romanticism of cycling, that something like that can happen. I mean, I had a, a wonderful career. I wouldn't, can't change anything about it. And I don't, I mean, I have regrets about the mistakes I made, but I only did what I could do. You know, I, I, I wasn't capable. I mean, maybe I have massive physical capabilities, but my head a lot of time would let me down in certain areas. But I, that's who I am and what I was. But I still won 10 stages in Grand Tours, wore the leaders' jerseys. I, I, I've done... You know, I've 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 been at the front of the biggest race in the world at critical moments, even if I haven't won. And, and I, I, there's races I I didn't win that I have the fondest memories of. You know, it's where I was off the front, I got to do things that no one has done. I got to be uh, in the front with Gilbert chasing down Bonin and Cancellara and Flanders with 20 yeah. k's to go. I've got to be Sweet. off the front on my own. The Champs Elysees. I've got to lead the Tour de France to the streets of Barcelona on my own on Labour Day when it was just people up lampposts. So I got to do crazy things and none of those races I won. Yeah. But they're perhaps the most embedded in my psyche. And so that's why I love cycling. Mm, that's a brilliant that's a brilliant way to put it. Me and you not knocking up a lot of race wins, I'll agree with you there. It's experience, isn't it? It's, it's experiential cycling. It's not about the numbers, it's not about the, the victories, it's kind of it's it's how you race them, it's how you how you get the most from each one of those days. 
and make sure you remember them because that was a, a mistake I made when I was younger. It was forgetting the moment. Even if I did win, it was like, well, what's the next thing? You know, so it's always a ladder. Sometimes yeah. it's not a ladder. No. Just enjoy where you are and, and soak it up. But you have to have quite a long career to get to that point because when we're young men, we, we're just some young elite athletes. All we want to do is be better. It's just the chips on our shoulders, the insecurities we have. But once you get older, I think it, it's, if you can persevere, then you start to enjoy it a lot more. And if you're, if you're a great bike rider with that perseverance, you can sometimes have a result like Matty Haven. Yeah. And do something magical. So that's the way it should be. I think, yeah. I think you really did hit the nail on the head there. It's like something I've maybe come to terms with the last couple of years, and especially having a little son now, I've enjoyed the moment a lot more. And it sounds very simple, but even in a really shitty race like can be shitty, Paris Nice, I'm rolling through the Beaujolais, and I catch a moment, and I look out, and I see the vineyards, and I'm like, you know what? There's a lot of people who kill to be here right now, you know. And even if it's just that split second, and I just just get away from that moment and just enjoy my moment. It's mm. you do forget that because you're always looking forward and trying to do the next thing and the bigger thing, and that's true. Yeah, the best guys live in the moment. They yeah. just do it with a lot of uh, a lot of work. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the potty. I could actually keep going here. I've actually got a couple of questions in my head, but um, I feel like we've we've covered a lot today. We can do a second edition. We Mitch. can. We definitely can. Yeah, there you go. Well, now that now that the Chapter Three Studio is a Mitch Docker podcast venue, you can just be another little member in here, yeah, and you yeah. can just be working well, like Richard over there, and you yeah. can be like, actually. You know what, so-and-so who's going to be on the next potty, I don't agree with that. You yeah, know, yeah. you can just be like that Chip person in the background. Exactly. It'd be like one of those kind of weird radio studios. Uh, it'd be sweet. I'm, I'm hoping the audio is really good. I'm actually going to get some more audio equipment. So we've both got a mic we each. We dampen it a little bit, don't we? We do. We need like a little, you know, soundproof booth in here. Maybe it's actually, actually doing this. Yeah. Our smaller office would work, actually, next time. Yeah, but I know. But then we can't have you in the background there, Richard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Thanks, mate. Pleasure, Mitch.